All right, so we're going to begin a study through the book of 1 Thessalonians on Sunday night over the next uh, few weeks. And uh, one of the things I want to do as we go through this book is, of course, go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but I kind of like to focus on the prophecy end of it. There's a, every chapter in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, every chapter all has some kind of reference to the return of Christ. So there is a, a theme there. And one of the things we're going to see as we go through this book is not only were they looking for the return of Christ, were they talking about the return of Christ, but they were specifically looking for it because this church was in tribulation. This church was going through tribulation and they were looking for Jesus Christ to return. And so we see uh, a lot of there's a lot of references to it throughout First and Second Thessalonians, and the main rapture passage in the Bible that everybody goes to is in First Thessalonians chapter four. And so I uh, I thought I haven't talked very much about prophecy in a while, and so I figured I kind of do a little series through the book of First Thessalonians and and probably Second Thessalonians too, but then uh, put a little extra focus on prophecy. And so this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians is a very short chapter. It's only 10 verses, which is good because this gives us a lot of time to kind of uh, look at the context and to uh, study exactly what was going on during this time and with these people. And this is going to help us understand this book a lot. This, there's And uh, when we get to verse 10, this is actually a key verse that people use to... Uh, prove what they believe about the rapture and the timing of it. And boy, when we take a look at some context in this book, it is going to blow your mind how people interpret that verse, that they do what they do. So uh, there's a lot of great things we can learn from this book, and we're going to cover, try to cover everything. But I do want to kind of keep a special focus on the return of Christ as we go through this. And so something I think that will help us understand this particular book as we study it, is to understand the group that Paul was writing to and who they were and what they were going through during this time. And this is good. this is very important. We've got to understand some basic things about these people if we're going to interpret these passages correctly. Because the Bible, again, it is not a magical book. We do not just take a phrase from the Bible and then think we can change reality with it because we like what that phrase says. What was said in this passage was said for a reason. There was a purpose for it. When Paul wrote this, Paul was trying to get something very specific across to the Thessalonians. And so we need to find out what was Paul talking about then? What was he trying to get across to these people? And then if we come across a verse that maybe is a little confusing, a lot of times we can get some clarity when we understand these things. So we don't want to ignore these things. The Bible tells us some stuff about this church and about these people and about what was going on that helps us understand this book. And I think just from reading the book itself, when you read through 1 Thessalonians, I get the impression from the way Paul is writing, from the things that Paul is saying, that he is writing to a group of people who are very young in their faith and that we're going through a lot of persecution and I'm going to prove as we go through this, that is exactly who he was writing to. These are these are new Christians he's talking to. And Paul was a good writer. You know, I'm not a good writer. Okay, good writers, they can express emotion and feeling and the right. I can't do that. When I write, I just lay out facts and I often come across as a jerk. Okay. And good and that's because I'm not a good writer. It's just not what I do. 
Paul, though, like when you read through Corinthians, it's interesting just reading through that because you can tell he's writing to a group of people that he loves, but he's a little frustrated with them because they weren't doing very good. But while he's really hammering these people, you can feel the love in that book that he has for them. That's impressive the way he did that. And I, I get a lot from that. But with these people, I feel like he's writing to a people that he obviously cares very much about. He's excited for them. But at the same time, he knows they're not real mature, and he's just trying to encourage these people. And we're going to see that as we go through this book. And so uh, some things to help us, though, understand who these people are and what they were going through. I think it's important that we go through the book of uh, look at some examples of them being mentioned in the book of Acts. So uh, first thing we need to figure out is when was this written and what was going on. So notice in the very first verse, it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice that Paul is with Silvanus and Timotheus when he writes this letter. So now go over to Acts chapter 16. We're just kind of figuring out where we are in the book of Acts and what's going on. This is going to help us. It says, Then came he to Derby in verse 1, and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus. So Paul meets Timothy in Acts chapter 16. So we know that this Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians after Acts chapter 16. So this is kind of give us, giving us an idea. It says in verse 3, Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they knew not, or for they knew all that his father was a Greek. So it was probably shortly after this story that we read in Acts uh, in Acts 17, and go ahead and turn over there. And I think we can in Acts 17 is where we can learn a few things about the Thessalonians. And I want you all to get this because the Thessalonians they get a bad rap from people, and I don't think they deserve it. At least the Thessalonian church does not deserve it. But look what it says in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, I'm butchering these words, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, after his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Now, when Paul would often go to a new city to start a church, he didn't really do a soul-winning marathon. That wasn't kind of how he did it back then. Back then, he would always go to the Jewish synagogues, which made sense because these were the people that were looking for the Messiah. So if you're going to go to a new city, the first people that I would go to, I would go to my kinsmen according to the flesh. I would go to people who should have been believers. Now, we know that not all the Jews were believers. But there, the thing is, if you got a group of people where there's probably a group of saved people, where there's probably, where there's where there's all people that are supposedly looking for the Messiah, that's the first place I'm going to go. And so he had this manner of going there. And on the Sabbath, people uh, try to say this is Paul did church on Saturday, and that's what we should do too. Paul would do this because he's going to Jews, and that's where they would all assemble on Saturday. doesn't mean we have to do this. We're not Jews. But notice, he reasoned with them three days out of the Scriptures, three Sabbath days, and then verse 3, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. So Paul is basically comparing the Old Testament with the life of Christ. And so while it's not recorded here, 
There is no doubt that he taught them about salvation for the Gentiles, because, and, the, and the saved Jews clearly accepted this, because it was in Acts 10 when it was revealed that the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles too, and they started uh, going to the you know, giving the gospel to everyone. And so in verse 4, it says, And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. This is in Thessalonica, and a lot of people are getting saved. And so a great work is being done. But then in verse 5, says, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these do all contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, that there is another king, one Jesus, and they suffer the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So whenever you make a difference, opposition is going to come. And so notice a great work is being done in Thessalonica, and the Jews, they get envious. And so what do they do? They stir up the mob. What did they do? They went and found the low lives. What did they do? They went and found the homos and said, hey, you know, they're preaching Leviticus 2013 over there. You know what? You, these people hate you. You need to go protest them. And they got everything all stirred up, got everybody all fired up, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're having problems in towns. You know, nobody had a problem until the envious Jews got them all worked up. Just like nobody has a problem with churches in towns until the news media gets bent out of shape and then they do a story on it. And then all of a sudden, everybody's fired up. And who do they always get? The queers. Because you always get the scum of the city. You get the worst that society has to offer, and you fire them up, and then they get everybody stirred up. And that's why typically churches like ours get protested by homos. Because the Jews and the news media, they always go to the lewd fellows of the baser sort, low lives. And it's not all homos, but they're all low lives that always get stirred up and fired up during these things. So in verse 5, um, uh, verse Nine, I'm sorry. And when they had taken security of Jason of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. So they're in a new city now. Paul, he gets run out of town. He goes to another city. He goes to Berea and he starts preaching to the Jews just like he did in Thessalonica. And then, and this is where the Thessalonians get the bad rap. Because how many in here has ever heard of a Berean Baptist church? Anybody ever heard of Berean Baptist church? There's a lot of those. And it's a good name for a church. Now, why do they people do that? Well, because it says in here, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they re received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and of the honorable women, which were Greeks, and of the men, not a few. Now, notice verse 12. It's saying the same thing about them in Berea as it said about those in Thessalonica. But in verse 11, it talks about the Bereans. Were, the Bereans, now get this, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And it's because they did. They received the word, and they searched the scriptures. That's a good thing. I, I think it's appropriate for a church to name themselves Berean Baptist Church. But you know what I've never heard of? A Thessalonica Baptist Church or a Thessalonican Baptist. I've never heard of that because everybody thinks Bereans are better than Thessalonicans. But wait a minute. The saved people in Thessalonica 
They were doing the same things that those in Berea were. The difference was the town. Okay, The town was the difference. It wasn't the saved people. The saved people were doing the same thing. The saved people received the word. The saved people got saved. A bunch of them got saved. But the town reacted differently than in Thessalonica than in Berea. In fact, because in Berea, you know, for the most part, everything's fine. Everything's good until the Jews, again, if we're not going to go through the whole chapter, from Thessalonica, they heard what was going on in Berea. And you know what they did? They went and got them all fired up there too. The town received them in Berea. But the Jews from Thessalonica went and got them all stirred up. Now, where have we seen something like this today? Well, I think where you can say a good example of a Berean Baptist church is our church because of the fact that our town has been very good to us. Our town has never has not given us grief. You know, we haven't had any trouble with our leaders or anything like that. But, you know, there's people out there, there's other churches that preach the exact same things we do, and they've gotten all kinds of grief. In fact, you know, you've got, you know, First Works, they got blown up. Why? What, what's the difference? You know what? They're in Thessalonica is the difference. They've got saved people in their church. They're doing good works in that church, but they're in a super wicked area. And that area is wicked. And you know what they did? They pretty much drove them out to another town. They got a new place. And you know what they'll probably do over there? They're going to do good works over there. They're going to get people saved over there. And you know what? The people from over there are going to go try to stir everybody up over there. And that's what happened here. The only time we ever had any trouble locally over here, it was when people from Chicago got bent out of shit. Because let me tell you, Chicago is a Thessalonica. Now, there's people out there ready to get saved, but they're, they're a wicked city. And you know what they did? They went and stirred up all the low lives in our area. Because we got some low lives in our area, too. Don't get me wrong. But everything was fine until a bunch of clowns in another city got the idiots in our town all worked up and bent out of shape. You know why? Because we're, we're more of a Berea in this area. So the thing is, you know, if, there's a, a, if you're a church in a wicked city and you want to call yourself Thessalonica Baptist Church because you're getting persecuted by the wicked people in the city, you know what? I think that's a great name. You know, and so the, the Berea being more noble, it was more about the town, not so much the Christians. So let's not be down on the Thessalonians. God bless them for being a light in a wicked city. You know, thank God for them. But it, it's it's not a bad reflection. So if somebody ever calls himself Thessalonica Baptist and then you're you're in a Berean Baptist, you're not better than them. You know, it's just your town's better. You're in an easier area than them. But I say all that to show you that they, the, the church in Thessalonica was in an exceptionally wicked area. It was in an area where persecution was greater than places like Berea. And this is an important thing we need to understand because it was, it was not the church that was bad. It was the Jews. It was the community that was bad. Same results in Thessalonica with those who got saved, but it was the outsiders that caused the grief. And so we always need to keep that in mind. So now looking in verse 14, or verse 13. So it says, but the Jews, when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. The news media, that was CNN back then. They've been around for a long time. Verse 14. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul 
to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they, um, and they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens and received a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed and they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. And so notice that Paul leaves Berea after they were at Thessalonica. He leaves Timotheus there. But then after he was in Athens for a while, he ends up sending for Timothy to come and join him. And notice at the very end of 1 Thessalonians, I don't know if this is inspired or not, but I have no reason to doubt it. If it might be, this might not be in all your Bibles. At the very end of 1 Thessalonians 5, after verse 28, it says the first epistle to the Thessalonians was written from Athens. Does that say that in anybody's Bible besides mine? But according to that, it mentioned, it's, it's, it's a note in there. I don't know if it's accurate or not that it was written from Athens, but it does seem very likely that this book would have been written during that time. And so as we read this letter, let's keep thinking about who these people are and what they were going through when they received this letter from Paul. This was a church that was in a town where the Apostle Paul got ran out of town. You know, that probably was tough on that church. It was a church, it was, it was in a town where the people hated Paul and they hated the Christians so much, they even went to the next town to go stir things up and cause trouble for Paul. And you better believe anybody that was loyal to Paul and that loved Paul back in Thessalonica was probably still getting grief locally. And we're going to see that as we go through 1 Thessalonians. These people were getting grief. They were going through tribulation. They were being persecuted. So verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 1 says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. You know, it's a good thing to let people know you're praying for them, especially new believers. You know, it's a good thing if, you know, you lead somebody to the Lord to maybe, you know, check up on them, follow them, try to make friends with them. Let them know you're praying with them because you know when somebody gets saved, the devil is going to do everything he can to make them an unproductive Christian. The last thing he wants them doing is going and bringing more fruit. They start coming to church. They get baptized. You better believe the devil's going to bring challenges. You better believe if they start changing their life and they start, you know, uh, living for the Lord, there's going to come some grief and it helps a lot to let new believers know you're praying for them. And, you know, there's, we could, we could preach a message through 1 Thessalonians just teaching you how to treat new believers and new Christians. And we'll probably cover some of these things as we go, but, you know, let people know you're praying for them. And listen, just saying, I'm praying for you, doesn't convince anybody you're praying for them. Because you know what? Everybody knows Christians say that all the time. But I don't know how to explain this, but you know, you know when people pray for you and when they don't. I don't know how to explain that, but you know when it's for real, you know when it isn't. And it's a good thing to let people know that you're praying for them. And it does. It means a lot because, you know, when people are going through a tough time, they need encouragement. When a church is being persecuted, you know what? We ought to support them. We ought to back them up. We ought to let them know, hey, we support you. We're with you. Send them a text. Send them a message. You know, let them, let them, let them know because it stinks when everybody's saying bad stuff about you. It's no fun. I mean, we listen, we all know we're good people here. But does it feel good when people say bad stuff about our church? No, it doesn't feel good. Because you always wonder, does anybody believe this stuff? 
And it's nice if there's those out there who, you know, if you just reach out to them, you know, I don't believe this stuff. You want to know who a lot of the, my friends are that I've made even recently on Twitter? It's people I see getting attacked. I've made a lot of friends with other preachers on Twitter. And what drew me to them is I just saw them being attacked. And I could tell this wasn't right. This wasn't fair. And you know what? I just want to reach out to them, let them know, hey, I don't believe these clowns. Hey, I hear what people are trying to say about you. But you know what? I see through it. I can tell what you really are. Keep up the good work. And and I do that because even people I don't really know, there's preachers out there. I've never met them. I know who they are. I don't want them thinking bad things about me. And when there's clowns out there lying, you know what? It does. It makes me feel good when somebody reaches out and says, hey, I'm praying for you. I support you. Even when I don't even really know them that well, it makes me feel good and it's a blessing. And we ought to do that kind of thing. You all can do that kind of thing. It, you know, it really does. It, you know, we, I think we take it for granted here. Our church, you know, we, we get a lot of attention online, good and bad. You know, we're, we're used to, we had a lot, we've had a lot of people to come and visit our church and we, we get a lot of encouragement thrown our way. But you know, a lot of pastors aren't used to that at all. They get almost nothing. And it does, it means a lot, but they get an email. Hey, I listened to your sermon online. That was a blessing. And, you know, go, you know, go find that guy that's out there that nobody pays attention to his YouTube channel, but he preaches good. And you know what? Send him a message and just tell him, hey, that was great. Keep up good work. You know, I'm listening to you from Illinois. And you all think, who cares? Well, you know, it's a big deal if you're up in Maine or something like that, you know, someplace far away, knowing somebody from another state. I remember the first time someone from another country. I, I, I think the first one I remember that I knew was from another country. I think it was I think it was the O'Hagan. I think it was Clive O'Hagan left message or something. I was like, man, somebody from Ireland's listening to my preaching? Made me feel pretty good. You know, we all like to think it's getting out there. But little things like that, they mean a lot to people. And you know what? Thank God for our brothers and sisters that are all over this world. And a lot of them, they're going through a lot of stuff, going through a lot of difficulties, especially right now, too. People that are in other countries that are way worse than ours with this lockdown and with restrictions and everything. And just doing a little something to let them know you're praying for them, you're thinking about them. It means a lot. It's a good thing to do. And I didn't mean to spend so much time on that, but we all, I don't think we realize the potential power we have to help keep other people going. And you know, you ought to do something with that. And you say, I'm a nobody. Hey, you're from Illinois. And that means something to somebody. You know, maybe in another country, just because you're an American, you know what? Find that missionary that's out there, that's putting his stuff out there, and just send them some encouragement. That means something to people. It means something, too, for some people in the online world, the Facebook, to just have a Facebook friend or something from America. So we don't think anything. You know, I, I hate to say this when it's going out online, but it's no big deal being from America or Illinois. But you know what? Some people think it is. So do something with that. Man, that's good. I should just preach the whole message on that. But sorry, sorry, getting sidetracked. Verse three. Notice this: remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. It's a good thing for new believers, especially, to recognize the work that they do and encourage them in the Lord. Let people let them know. Hey, I see what you're doing. Hey, man, great. 
Man, you coming to church now every week, coming to church. Man, you come coming Sunday night too. Man, you're really on fire. You know, just get them encouraged, get them fired up. You know, let them know, hey, this is good. We're seeing progress. They're like little kids. Little kids, they love getting the compliments. They love when, you know, showing you all these little things that they're able to do now that in reality is no big deal, but it is to them. And you know what? We ought to make a big deal about it. And you know what it does? It encourages them to want to just keep doing more. It encourages them to want to keep trying a little harder. They sing a special. They play an instrument. Make a big deal about these things. If they're young and immature, it's going to really help a lot. And you know what? Even if they're older and mature, it's encouraging too. You know what? I plan on continuing to preach the best I can, whether I get compliments or not. But I'm not going to stand here and tell you that compliments never make me feel good. Flattery, I don't like. That's another thing. But we're all like that. I mean, we, we all want that. You know, nobody wants to be like working really hard, trying to do good, you know, practicing in the choir and then mess up and then having people laugh at you uncontrollably. Where's Jason? <laughs> Made one mistake in choir practice today and laughing hysterically at me. I, I, I knew I'd get some way I could take a dig at him in the service for that. But anyway, verse four, knowing brethren, beloved, your election of God. And this statement, I think it probably meant a lot to these Gentile believers to know that they're now chosen. We've got a group of people. Remember, it started with the Jews, but it also mentioned Gentiles that got saved. There were many Gentiles that got saved. And now you had a group of people who thought they were the chosen people just because of the fact that they descended from Abraham. But now they know, hey, it's not about where you come from Physically, it's where you come from spiritually, and you got a church that's got Jews and Gentiles in it, and these Gentiles, probably for the first time in their life, are hearing, you're God's elect. You are God's chosen, and I think that made them feel good. You know, and we, and we need to be reminded of that. You know, and we're not, when we say these things, hey, you are God's people. You are a royal nation. You are a holy priesthood. You're a peculiar people. This isn't something that we hear and we take upon ourselves and then we brag about it like, wow, I'm really something. No, it's something that it sobers us a little bit and it reminds us, hey, I'm a child of God. I probably ought to represent him well. I probably should try to act like it a little bit and make sure that I have a good testimony because I don't want to make my heavenly father look bad. So, Verse 5 says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So Paul is encouraging them to remember what they saw, probably because he knew that lies were being said to them by the Jewish news media. I mean, here, remember, they, the Jews didn't forget about him when they left. They found out what was going on in Berea, and the Jews followed them. So you know there's a bunch of talk. Hey, did you all hear about that group over there? They're meeting over in this area. It was the Apostle Paul started that group. That guy's crazy. Them apostles, they're a bunch of nuts. They're bad people. They're against Caesar. All, you know, we know all the lies they were saying about him. And here these people are over there. They're good people. They love the Lord. They're following the Bible, but they're being lied about. You know, the Southern Poverty Law Center probably listed them as a hate group over there. They have all these stories. They probably had the reason files making videos about their church, trash talking them. And you know what? God might not have been taking care of those guys 
like he did, <laughs> like he has for, for us. You know, we don't, we don't know for sure, but you know the same type of thing was going on in Thessalonica. There's, there's no doubt about that. And so he's reminding them, hey, don't listen to these people. Okay, you all know what we did. You know us. You were there. You saw it with your own eyes. Hey, are you going to believe what you see with your own eyes or what the news media tells you? And let me tell you, there's a lot of people out there, they will believe the news media before they believe their own eyes. That happens all the time. It's very frustrating. And so the truth is, people, when people believe lies, it's just that they they fear, they're in fear, and they don't want to be lied about. I'm just going to tell you that right now, because this is one of the biggest things that pastors worry about. They always worry about that negative news media coverage. That's why they're not taking a lot of the stands they want to take, because they know the people in their church aren't going to back them up, and they will believe the news media. It doesn't matter if they've been going to that church for 20 years, and they know that pastor. They've been to his house. He's been to their house. They've known him for years. But if somebody on the news media comes and says, this guy's a hate preacher, he's a nut job, they'll believe him. And it's not even that they believe him. It's just that they don't want to be lied about too. They don't want to get any attached to them too. And so they end up turntailing and running. And I imagine that was probably temptation for them too. Because again, the persecution they're getting is worse than anything we've ever gotten. But I, I, you know, we can only imagine what it was like for them. But he said in verse six, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. So they're going through affliction. Keep that in mind. And so Paul's trip to Thessalonica, it did, it really stirred things up. In fact, you know what the people are saying? These are the guys that turn the world upside down. Now we all love that verse and we use it as like, yeah, we want to turn the world upside down. But they didn't say that as a compliment. You know, they were saying that as a bad thing, but we all know it was a good thing. And you understand too, when the news media and when the clowns out there in the online world are saying the junk that they say about people like us, they mean it as an insult, but you know, we should take it as a compliment. You know, thank you. Oh, you're the worst church I've ever heard of. Well, at least you've heard of me. You know, thank God for that. You know, that, that's the kind of response we ought to have. That stuff is not even that we're trying to get attention. I mean, do you really think I want to get attention from some of the people I get attention from? No, I, I personally be glad if the homos didn't know I existed. You know, I'm not trying to help them, but I am trying to help everybody else. And, you know, it, but at the same, so a lot of these things though, when, you know, when I get the attacks, I take it as a compliment. You know, uh, I, I, I would be very concerned if these people liked me. There's some people we don't want liking us. So verse seven. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For some of you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. So this doesn't sound like a church that we should be ashamed of. This is a good church. This is one that Paul used as an example. The Thessalonian church was doing great. It was just, uh, it was Thessalonica that was bad. Not the Thessalonian church. They were good. They were a great example because there were other Christians that were suffering during this time. And it was their example that was an encouragement to other people because nobody wants to be the only person getting attacked. You know, nobody wants to be the only one suffering because then it's easier for you to feel like you are some kind of nut job and 
you know, all these things they try to say about you. But notice, so Macedonia is where, because um, he, so he says in verse 8, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. So notice those towns he mentioned, Macedonia and Achaia, because Macedonia is where Paul and Silas had been beaten in Acts 16. Because Philippi, that was where that took place, but Philippi was a chief city of Macedonia. And so Paul also, in Acts chapter 18, he had some trouble in Achaia that's mentioned in verse 11 of Acts 18. It says, and he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And when uh, Gallio was deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. So if Thessalonians was written after this, then that would mean this church is only probably a couple of years old, maybe a few years old. This is a new church that hasn't been around very long. It's got a bunch of Gentiles that were not used to the things of God. They were not used to, you know, Jewish style morality and things like that. They weren't used to that. But, and that's going to come into play later in the book. This was, this was a new thing for them, but yet these people are doing the best they can. They are doing a great work. And so when all the, when all these other places were bad things, because, you know, think about that church at Philippi. Remember, that's where Acts was beaten and thrown in prison. And God did a great work there, but Philippi obviously wasn't friendly to the gospel either, was it? But you know, so you have all the, everywhere Paul went, there's this, all this persecution going on. And so the Thessalonians, that persecution they were going through, it was an inspiration to these other places who were also dealing with things that probably weren't as bad. But when they're seeing, hey, they're going through this kind of stuff, they're facing off with these kind of battles and winning, you know what, we can handle what we're going through too. This Thessalonica church was a great church. I'm telling you, if I ever started a church in some horrible city, I might call it Thessalonica Baptist Church. And a lot of people would probably be confused about that. But you know what? I'd give an explanation. This is a church. This is a, we're, you know, it's a, we're a good church. We're doing, we're doing a great work. We just live in a really crummy city. But you know what? Thank God somebody's shining a light in those really crummy cities. I mean, I, folks, there's some place I would never want to go to. But you know what? I'm thankful for those that are there. You know, I wouldn't want to do it. The Lord didn't call me there, and I'm definitely not going to call myself there. But I thank God for people that are in wicked cities. They, those people there need a light, too. Those people need some soul winners, too, in that area. So don't be down on those churches that are just in really, really bad areas. So uh, verse 9 says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So thank, thank God for those who are saved out of wicked lives and are able to show others that they can change too and handle difficult situations. A lot of these people were people that worshipped idols. Uh, just a few years ago, they were worshipping idols. And so, I mean, imagine, you know, those of you especially that have been saved for a really long time, and as tough as things are even just right now for you, imagine if you'd only been saved a few years. Imagine if you were that person just a few years ago, you were bowing down to an idol. You know, thank God for these people that they got on fire for God and were zealous for the Lord and doing great things. This was, this was a church that I think needed to be, you know, commended greatly. So verse 10 says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, 
which delivered us from the wrath to come. So throughout this book, again, I mentioned there's been constant references to the coming of Christ because this group, I think they were probably looking for it because they were going through a lot. They're thinking, man, the Lord needs to hurry up and come back because they were dealing with a lot of persecution during that time. And every chapter has a mention of it. Chapters 1 through 4, all the last verse, they all end with a reference to the return of Christ. And then the final chapter in 1 Thessalonians, it starts off talking about the return of Christ. So the Thessalonians, they were a persecuted church. Every chapter in 2 Thessalonians, it has a re- reference to the coming of Christ. In fact, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. Look what it says here. So, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which also ye suffer seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. So now taking all this into consideration, everything that we have just seen, just how bad would someone have to mangle the scriptures to take 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 and use it as a proof that Christians will not be here for tribulation? Think about that. After all we've seen about the Thessalonica church, after all we've seen just in First Thessalonians, what would make somebody go to First Thessalonians 1.10 and use that as a proof text for a pre-tribulation rapture? Because you all realize this is a proof text. In fact, you go find any book on the pre-tribulation rapture, they're going to use this verse. They're going to just isolate... Okay? They're going to isolate this one verse, ignore context. They're going to read and to wait for his son from heaven. Y'all waiting? Imminency. Who raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Folks, we've not been appointed under wrath, but to obtain salvation. Proof text that you won't be here for tribulation. Is that what Paul was doing? Was Paul trying to teach the Thessalonians? You aren't going to have any tribulation. Was he trying to teach that to these people? They were going through tribulation. This church is in tribulation. He specifically mentions in 2 Thessalonians, persecutions, tribulations. He says affliction. He's using all these words, talking about all these horrible things that they're going to go through. And then he says it's a righteous thing for God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. You're going through tribulation. God's going to recompense tribulation to these people too. So to just say that Christians can't, you know, have, or never going to have to go through that, or that tribulation equals the wrath of God, that's an insult to this church. What did they do? They did everything they were supposed to do with great opposition, with great persecution. Folks, you have to mangle the scriptures so bad. Look what it says in First Thessalonians, in, in chapter 1, verse 6. It says, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost. These people got saved in much affliction, knowing I'm going to get persecuted if I get saved. You know what they did? They still got saved in much affliction. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, 
But even after that uh, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, that's when they got beat. We all know Acts chapter 16. He's referring back to that. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God, which much, much contention. Verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 2. For ye, brethren, became followers of the church of God, which is in Judea and in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have the, of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. So does it look like they're having a picnic in First Thessalonians 1? Does it look like they're having a picnic in First Thessalonians chapter 2? In First Thessalonians 3, he says that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereto. For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass, and ye know. Verse 7, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. Look at chapter 4 and verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, a proof texter, which is someone who just takes a scripture and isolates it, ignoring the context, God's promising, comforting that you're never going to go through tribulation. Really? After all we've seen they're going through, that's what you think that verse means? No, you know why Paul said comfort one another with these words? Because they were in tribulation. Many of them were asleep or dead. And Paul's comforting them that Jesus is going to return one of these days. And you're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds. He's comforting them that they are going to be, they are going to see those dead loved ones again. You know why you're talking about dead loved ones? Because they were going through persecution. They were going through tribulation. Folks, this is eisegesis. This is proof texting of the worst kind to go to 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and to use that as a proof text to say, we're not going to be here for tribulation. That is ridiculous. Hey, listen, folks, even if we are dead wrong on prophecy, if, even if we are dead wrong, there is no doubt you should never go to 1 Thessalonians 1.10 to prove no tribulation. I mean, imagine, any, even if the pre-trib was true, to use that verse is just out of line and ridiculous. But yet, everybody does. Everybody does. I remember when I was first, um, I was doing a, a study on prophecy. This was years ago when I was in teen class. And I remember seeing things that just didn't seem to be adding up, making sense. And I remember just trying to figure it out. And then I remember all of a sudden I got the first Thessalonians 1.10. We delivered from the wrath to come. Boom, that's all I needed. That was all I needed. No tribulation. Delivered, you know, rat, delivered from the wrath to come. That, I mean, that was the verse that told me, all right, ignore everything you're seeing because this verse says what I needed to say. But folks, did it say what I needed to say? Not, not even close. It's absolutely ridiculous. 
And so the teaching of the coming in Christ, and again, because this is, this is a young church, this is a new church, it's really one of the most basic teachings of the early church. And unfortunately today, theologians have complicated this teaching in a really bad way. Look what it says in Hebrews 6. We'll close with this passage right here in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1. Because again, we're going to see more evidence as we go through this. This is, this is a young church. This is a new church. This is not a mature church with a bunch of, you know, believers that have been at this for a long time that know a whole lot of Bible. Paul wasn't able to be at this church very long because he got ran out of town. Now, thankfully, Timotheus stayed there for a while, and I don't know how long exactly, but he, I'm sure he had some time to teach him some things. They understood some stuff. But Paul, he obviously knows that these people know something about the coming of Christ because he's constantly referring to that to them. So he, he, he knows they understand some things about this because this is the, the coming of Christ is one of the more basic teachings of the Bible. It says in Hebrews 6, 1, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. What's that? That's, remember he's talking to Hebrews here. He's talking to Jews and they needed to repent of their dead works and to have faith in God. So you know what he's talking about here? Salvation. You know what we all ought to have down right now? Salvation. That's the most basic of all teachings for Christians is salvation. That's the first thing we need to do is we need to get people saved. First thing. And then of the doctrine of baptism. What's the second thing we want to do? We want to get them baptized. We always tell people that's the first step of obedience. After salvation, get baptized. And then he says, of laying on of the hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. I mean, one of the earliest things, the coming of Christ. And I think that was something that Paul had taught these people. They knew about the coming of Christ. They were, they knew he was coming back one of these days. They knew that they were, uh, they were going to be delivered. They had been delivered because they were already saved from the wrath that is to come on the world. There is no doubt. We are not here for the wrath of God. That is of the most basic teachings that we know. We are not here for wrath. But ladies and gentlemen, tribulation, Paul said, we've been appointed there too. And I know these passages, when he's talking about tribulation, it's not talking about the tribulation. I get that. I know that. But folks, we own tribulation. We own that. That's all about what we are. And to use a verse like that, I mean, I, it, it, I'm making these videos right now on teaching on preaching and talking a lot about this. Uh, we've got some videos coming out on this that are, I'm hoping are going to be helpful. But it is amazing just how bad people are just mangling scriptures. And we've all done it before. But, you know, it's one thing to just do it and mess up. But it's another thing when we, we never learn. We never let anything correct us. And, you know, I'm embarrassed that there was ever a time where I would just look at that one verse and it caused me to ignore everything I'm thinking about. You know, I know it's not looking good in Matthew 24 when Jesus is coming after the tribulation of those days, but I got 1 Thessalonians 1.10, ladies and gentlemen. No, I don't even have that. Not even close. And it's just like, as I was going through this, I'm like, I can't believe I ever used that verse to back up that claim. And... just because I prove to you beyond any shadow of a doubt that that is a mangling of that verse, it still doesn't mean 
that they're wrong, you know, pre-tribbers are wrong on everything. But at the same time, if they're not willing to even be corrected on this verse and they're still going to use that kind of thing, you know what that's called? It's called stubbornness. It's called denial. And so as we go through this, and as we actually take the time to get real context and see everything that's going on, it is going to continue to blow our minds that 1 Thessalonians 4 would ever be used to teach Bible prophecy that way. And, I said, I, and I'm not trying to be mean. You all know, man, I'm, I'm nice to preacher, but to a fault. You know, I, 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 you know, and I'm going to continue to be that way. But man, I just can't stand here and just preach through a verse and just and to listen to people just mangle the scripture that way. I'm not. I'm gonna lie. It drives me crazy, and I don't want to do it. And this kind of thing needs to be called out. It needs to be corrected. And at least you know. And, and I all I try to do, I just try to keep taking one verse away at a time. And you know what? They keep losing verses. And you know what? First Thessalonians one ten. That one needs to be long gone. Anybody that's ever wrote a book on that subject, they ought to at least take that verse out for sure and say, you know what, were we thinking using this to prove anything? But they're doing it. It's not right. And so this church, the Thessalonica church, it was a great church. It was, it, it, whenever you think about churches that are in these wicked parts of the world being persecuted, think of them like the Thessalonians. And you know what you ought to do? You ought to send them some encouragement. You know, thank God that the Jews in Chicago, figuratively speaking, are too lazy to spend, you know, come two hours over here all the time and, you know, cause us a lot of trouble. You know, you know, thank God for that, that we live in Berea. But let's remember our brothers in Thessalonica and let's keep, let's keep them in mind. Let's send them some encouragement. Thank God for the tools we have today where we can do that in an easy way. And I, I believe God will bless us if we do that, I, I know we'll be a blessing to them. And so if you don't get anything from this message, at least get that. Think about those in more difficult areas. Think about our brothers and sisters that are in other countries, just doing their best, trying to serve the Lord in a, in a terrible place. They are not terrible Christians. They are great Christians. They just live in an awful, awful situation. And we don't have that. And we ought to just be thankful for that. We ought to thank God for that. And you know what we ought to do? We ought to make sure we just keep that light bright in this area so it doesn't ever get that way because it can happen here too. Cities aren't the only place. Big cities aren't the only place where it can get wicked and where it can get dark. It can in small towns too. And I don't want that to happen here. So let's keep that light shining. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. I pray dear God, this will help everyone or help us to, uh, you know, learn from just you know, horrible Bible interpretation from the past. Maybe we're caught up in help us to study a little harder and be more honest with the scriptures. And dear God, I pray you'll help us to be thankful for uh, the kind of area we live in and help us to think about those that are our brothers and sisters that are in more difficult places and help us to be an encouragement to them. We do thank you for them and pray you'll uh, just be a blessing to them and help us to uh, just work on ways to be more of an encouragement to others. In your name we pray. Amen.